This is Kenny Graywall, president of the Ohio chapter of ACC. Before we present the new podcast episode dealing with cutting edge therapy of atrial arrhythmias, I just wanted to take a moment to recognize the very unfortunate passing of a giant in the field of cardiology and electrophysiology, both here in Ohio and known throughout the cardiovascular community. We unfortunately just learned that Dr. Al Waldo passed away after a short illness. Dr. Waldo was a master clinician. He was a researcher. He was a master educator, and he was a mentor to so many of us in the cardiovascular community around Ohio. I have fond memories of Dr. Waldo as a clinician in Cleveland when I was a fellow, reading EKGs with him, uh, accompanying him on rounds. And I still refer to so many of his pearls for EKG interpretation. Dr. Waldo was originally from New York State, and after spending some time training at Columbia and Johns Hopkins, he joined the University Hospital's medical staff in 1986, basically to establish the Division of Electrophysiology there. He ended up as a professor at Case Western and clinician at UH all the way until 2022, when he just retired a year ago at the age of 85. We all have fond memories of him as a master clinician, educator, researcher as well. In addition to all of his excellence clinically, he actually was instrumental in the founding of the Ohio chapter of ACC in the late 1980s, and he also served as our second president. Uh, and so many of us who have uh, contributed or, or benefited from the, our state chapter really walk in his footsteps. Therefore, we think it's very fitting that for a podcast episode talking about the latest treatment of arrhythmias that we dedicate this episode to our clinician, mentor, educator, and teacher, Dr. Al Waldo. And now for today's episode. So welcome back to the Cardio Hub podcast. Today, we're going to have a discussion about atrial fibrillation, a condition you probably occasionally see in your own practice. Before I introduce our two eminent Central Ohio electrophysiologists that are going to enlighten us on all things AF, I do want to introduce a, a special co-host. I'd like to welcome also from here in Central Ohio at Ohio State University, third-year fellow, Andrew Hornick. Thanks, Dr. Graywall. I'm honored to be here tonight, filling the big shoes of your usual co-host, Ben Allen Cherry. To introduce myself, my name is Andrew Hornick. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at Ohio State University here in Columbus. I'm pursuing a career in general cardiology with an interest in sports cardiology and imaging. I'm excited to introduce one of our guests tonight, Dr. Ralph Augustini, who's one of our EP faculty here at Ohio State. We've been in the trenches of inpatient consoles together actually a few times now. Dr. Augustini, do you mind just telling us briefly about where you're from and your training pathway to get to OSU currently? Sure. I'm originally from Western New York. I grew up about an hour south of Buffalo in a large family. I wound up making my way through State University of New York at Buffalo, now the Jacobs School of Medicine. And I uh, did my residency at the University of Michigan. During my residency, Dr. Topol had moved from Michigan to the Cleveland Clinic, and I'd follow him there thinking I was going to go into intervention. 
And once I got into fellowship, I really found the intellectual and variability of EP procedures to be more enticing. And I chose to do EP there at the Cleveland Clinic. I joined uh, the practice at Ohio Cardiology at Ohio Health or Riverside coming out of fellowship and then transitioned to Ohio State for 17 years. Thanks, Dr. Augustini. We're we're glad that you've joined the the good side over at Ohio State after starting off in Michigan. Yes, and I would echo that welcome, Ralph. Thanks for joining us, and it's it's been great to know you over the years and, and practice with you as well. Our second guest is also a eminent electrophysiologist from here in Central Ohio. I'd like to welcome Dr. Anish Amin. He's currently the chief of electrophysiology at, here at Ohio Health. He did do his medical school residency and fellowship at Ohio State, I think finishing approximately in 2015. And I believe he's just about to receive an endowed chair in electrophysiology here at Ohio Health as well. So Anish, congratulations on that and welcome. And just let us know a little bit about your current clinical interests. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Graywall, for inviting me. And thanks, Ralph, for agreeing to participate on this panel uh, with me. As uh, Dr. Graywall mentioned, I trained at Ohio State. In fact, Ralph trained me. And so it's quite humbling to be here with him tonight. We've had, you know, since coming over, since finishing fellowship and, and starting at Ohio Health, we've had tremendous opportunities are mostly related to novel energy therapies in managing atrial fib and as well as novel device therapies for left atrial appendage occlusion. So talk both topics that are consistent with tonight's conversation. Awesome. Well, welcome both Dr. Augustini and Dr. Amin. It's great to have you both with us. I think to start off this conversation, we probably should just dive right into one of the core things that we always discuss with with atrial fibrillation. And that is when you have a patient who's coming to your office, it's a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. How do you make a decision about pursuing either a rate control or a rhythm control strategy? Dr. Augustini, maybe we can start with you and, and then toss it over to Dr. Ami. Uh, number one, I think a, a good history from the patient is helpful, in particular if they're aware of the AFib or not, and also how long it's been present. From there, generally, I would take a workup, uh, including an echocardiogram an ECG, and some blood work to really look to see if the AFib itself has had a substantial impact on the structural components of the heart. Ralph, does does the fact that the patient might be inpatient versus outpatient affect maybe how aggressive you would be? The incidental clinical AFib you see in the office, would you treat that different than maybe someone admitted with, with rapid ventricular response and acute symptoms? I think there's a definite value to making sure that if someone is symptomatic and or if they have a rapid ventricular response, they get treated quickly. One of the, one of the most important components is 
is making sure that their rate does not exceed 130 beef per minute regularly or an average rate of 110 beef per minute on a surveillance monitor such that they would potentially develop a, a dilated cardiomyopathy from tachycardia. So it also, if, if they're quite symptomatic, you're going to want to be more aggressive getting that patient back to normal rhythm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And Dr. Amin, anything else you would kind of add as, as part of your practice when you approach the patient who has new AFib and how to manage them and work them up? Yeah, I, I, I generally agree. I think that most programs are going to approach patients with the primary consideration for hemodynamic stability. And so those patients that Dr. Graywall mentioned that are inpatients admitted acutely for atrial fibrillation with rapid rates, we want to find ways to restore sinus rhythm for those individuals. I would add that in after we've addressed the acute needs of the patient, I think we have taken an approach that really begins to lay the groundwork for patients and caregivers in identifying atrial fibrillation as a chronic progressive disease. So a disease state that may manifest both with intermittent symptomatic and asymptomatic episodes and lead to downstream heart failure events, valvular events, all of which will need management after the initial workup is completed with structural heart assessment as Dr. Augustini referred to. We also want to assure that we've addressed stroke risk reduction with a you know, diligent conversation with the patient about risk factors for stroke. And I think we're all familiar with the CHADS 2 bass scoring system, which is what we use. We ask patients to actually identify their own score so they understand where their risk is coming from and then make recommendations about both short-term and long-term anticoagulation strategies as they're applicable or downstream left atrial appendage closure strategies if that's more appropriate. I will say that as if we're thinking about patients who if we're thinking about rate and rhythm control, which I think was the original question that you asked, I think uh, um, for the newly diagnosed patient, most of us are probably going to at least ask patients and care teams to consider rhythm control when it's clinically appropriate. So certainly patients in an ambulatory setting on a general medicine ward, it's very appropriate to consider rhythm strategies. Maybe in an ICU setting, we may say, you know, let's visit with these folks in an, when they're discharged and consider rhythm control strategies as an outpatient when it's more elective. And the reason that we ask folks to, to more consistently consider rhythm-based strategies today than maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, or 15 years ago is an increasing set of data that would suggest that rhythm patients who undergo rhythm control, whether they're asymptomatic or symptomatic, do demonstrate reductions in heart failure, heart failure, hospitalization, stroke, 
and potentially cardiovascular mortality. We, we wind up seeing the full spectrum of what patients present with in terms of symptoms or associated uh, comorbidities. And sometimes you'll see someone who looks perfectly fine and they're in AFib, but they're unaware of it. And you get an echo and their ejection fraction is 15%. And you just say, how could it come to this point? And so at a minimum, I try even, even what is patient claims they're completely asymptomatic. I at least try to do a cardioversion to restore sinus rhythm to see if they feel a, a clinical improvement. So whether that be a short-term episode of AFib or AFib that's been persisting for 12, 15 months even, I think they deserve a shot at sinus rhythm. So yeah, we're being much more aggressive at rhythm control because of the data that's emerging with composite death, cardiovascular events, and stroke. Yeah, Ralph, you're highlighting that classic patient that comes in with, you know, tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy with persistent AF that's unaware of it until their heart failure symptoms warrant the presentation. And I think we also want to make folks aware, Andrew, you know, as you move into clinical practice, patients who will present with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is decompensated by AF, which we know is one of the leading causes of HFF decompensation. So for the paroxysmal population, certainly recognizing the symptoms of heart failure decline, HFPEP exacerbation when they have paroxysms of atrial, atrial fib is also important. And then I'll, I'll throw out one more consideration and maybe get your thoughts and Dr. Graywell's thoughts even on this is that with the increasing prevalence of valvular disease and the awareness that atrial functional MR, micro regurgitation, which is in fact driven by atrial fibrillation, recognizing that early and understanding that patients who have atrial functional MR also benefit significantly from rhythm-based strategies is increasingly important. Yeah, thanks, Anisha. That's appreciate your insight on that. Do you think that since you talked about you both elucidated the, the benefits of early rhythm control, is there a classic kind of patient profile you think the general cardiologist should be looking for as and saying this is a patient even though this is their index presentation of AF this is a patient I might think of you know more early considering ablation or getting electrophysiologists involved to at least kind of start leading them down that pathway towards more aggressive therapy well I think it's a little bit of a loaded question if I'm honest with you I, I mean I think that as a community in electrophysiology, we want to recognize that ablative interventions are more effective earlier in the disease state. It makes sense that they would be more effective earlier in the disease state because an ablation is mechanistic and focal. And so if we go back to what we think the current model of atrial fibrillation is, which is something that's 
driven by independent triggers arising from specific structures in the left atrium, namely the pulmonary veins and the posterior wall, then intervention towards those structures early in the disease state, think diagnosis to intervention time that's less than two years, is going to be much more approachable than seeing patients who had long histories of atrial fibrillation refractory to multiple therapies just because of the inherent remodeling that occurs and the diffuse fibrosis that occurs in the atrium for patients that have long histories of atrial fib. So yes, we want to we want to educate both our electrophysiology community, clinical cardiology communities, PCPs, that early referral is important. Does that mean that we want to take patients who are presenting with their first episode of atrial fibrillation or two episodes in two years and ask them to consider ablation? Most people will tell you probably not. I mean, we want to help folks understand that there, we do have to reach a burden of events that will be, that will give us the opportunity to elicit a benefit from the therapy. And AFib ablation, even in today's day and age, is not without risk. And so we have to recognize that, you know, a one to two percent procedural risk, which is what is, you know, what we are seeing in our practice and in Columbus and in fact in most of Ohio, but even higher reported procedural risks in, in published studies is not something to take necessarily lightly for a single or two or three episodes of atrial fib. So I think the message is, you know, this is a chronic progressive disease and we want to intervene on the early end, ideally when events are starting to become increasingly frequent and the diagnosis to intervention time is, you know, let's say less than two years. And by diagnosis, I mean not that first episode, but when the, when the episodes are really starting to accumulate. I don't know. What do you think, Ralph? Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. I think one of the other things to think about, too, is that early intervention might not necessarily be ablation. It might be, particularly here in central Ohio, weight loss. So such, you know, it, it will reduce their blood pressure. It will reduce their sleep apnea and it will make any form of therapy more effective. And so if it's an infrequent atrial fibrillation event, I'm more likely to wait on that patient and try to work on their risk factors. And then when things do progress or they are failing, for instance, in antiarrhythmic drug, then move on to ablation at that point. We don't like to see them progress from paroxysmal to persistent simply because we know that that implies that there's enough fibrosis and remodeling that's occurred that is causing them to have that progression, that natural progression. 
disease. Yeah, I can't agree more with Ralph about the role of risk factor modification. It's taken us several years in our Heart Rhythm Society guidelines to incorporate and strenuously identify risk factor modification as a key element of treating uh, atrial fibrillation. And so weight loss is the number one thing we can ask our patients to consider. Remember that we, we want to give them achievable targets. So it, in our program, we tend to be very discreet to patients. We ask them to consider a 10% weight loss. So, you know, we think we're trying to make it so that it's approachable, it's achievable. It's not, uh, you know, something that we're, that has a negative connotation to it. And that number is born out of the data out of Adelaide, Australia, where some of the early work on weight loss and atrial fibrillation regression was completed. Ralph, you also mentioned sleep apnea. And I think, you know, maybe you're going to bring this up a little bit later, Andrew. I know that we had sort of discussed this before the the podcast recording about specifically for young patients who are otherwise healthy, the workup. And very often, you know, we complete the structural heart evaluation. We complete an, an endocrine evaluation. We will often ask patients to be, you know, acute, ag- aggressively monitoring and managing hypertension. Ralph, you're an expert in sleep apnea as well as electrophysiology. What do you think about occult sleep apnea, our stereotypes about obstructive sleep apnea, the role of central sleep apnea in arrhythmic populations? Well, you know, there's definitely a significant number of patients who have atrial fibrillation that have sleep disordered breathing. And so in our clinics, we pretty much established that anyone who's coming in with a new diagnosis of, of, of AFib gets at least a screening questionnaire to determine if they have any, any possible risk factors for sleep apnea or if they've had any clinical symptoms of it. And our referral rate, virtually every patient that I see will get at least the screening home sleep study to determine if they, if they need more aggressive treatment. And so our, our hit rate, so to speak for, for sleep apnea is about 80% for, for AFib patients. And so it's a virtual no brainer. I, I think it's just so much overlap between the disease processes um, with, with obesity, hypertension, AFib and sleep apnea. And in patients who have heart failure in particular, central sleep apnea is quite prevalent and upwards of 50% of heart failure patients will have some form of sleep disorder breathing. And there's more than half of those will be central apnea rather than obstructive apnea. So there's a bit of a subgroup that really we try to be aggressive with uh, screening tests in the heart failure patients as well for 
an assessment for any type of sleep disorder breathing. I think you mentioned this. So, so patients who have untreated sleep apnea, if we were to intervene with either drug or ablation, their downstream one-year success rates are about half the population that's treated. Is that right, Ralph? Uh, that's right. And I think this is why it's so important. Weight and sleep apnea have clear data for the success of the intervention, whether it's drug or ablation. Yeah, thanks, Anisha. Thanks for highlighting that. I think that's a good take-home point is that basically weight management and screening for sleep disorder breathing is almost a mandatory part of the initial assessment, and it's going to guide future success as well. So thanks for calling that out. I will also add, Anish, that we did have Andrea on our podcast last month, actually. We were f highlighting the role of APPs with innovative uh, clinics, and she's talked about the AFib, walk-in AFib clinic that you established at Iowa Health several years ago. She talked about the success rate, but she also highlighted how the visits are 50 minutes long and allow for more in-depth discussion about risk factor modification. So perhaps that's going to be a trend in, in AF management is to highlight those issues from the, from the beginning. We have about five to 10 minutes left. So I wanted to make sure we save some room to talk a little bit about left atrial appendage occlusion therapy, since this has become widespread over the last 15 years or so. So I thought I'd just ask Ralph, I think most of our clinicians are familiar with a left atrial appendage occlusion as a kind of a commonplace now therapy for patients who are intolerant or have other reasons to not take anticoagulation. But as, as you know, the devices evolved, as we now have multiple devices on the market, I wanted to maybe start with you, Ralph, and then transition to Anish and just ask, you know, can you like let our clinicians know like kind of what is the typical patient profile where they should be thinking about referral for device therapy versus ongoing anticoagulation? Certainly. So we really follow the published guidelines on this. And so we look at a FADS-VASC risk three or higher or score of three or higher and a has bled risk of two or higher. And also in particular patients who have had any form of bleeding problem, any form of issues with anemia, particularly in, in cancer patients where they're intermittently having their cell counts drop therapy. We look at patients who have had the use of warfarin with fluctuating levels of INR and difficult management because those patients tend to be at higher risk than those patients who are on the, the novel agents because they can go high or low and with just diet, dietary changes. Sometimes they're quite difficult to control. And there are patients who simply do not want to take an anticoagulant. And so those patients would also qualify, provided that their risk score was high enough. So 
We've all had the patient that comes into clinic and said, I will not take rat poison, which has become less so with the DOAX, but still out there. And uh, the association of, of anticoagulants, they may have a family member or somebody that was close to them that died from an intracranial hemorrhage, and they just absolutely will not accept an anticoagulant. And so those patients are, are very good candidates for device occlusion of the appendage. We do exclude patients who have significant mitral valve related atrial fibrillation. Anish, how's the practice at Ohio Health? Is that similar in terms of patient selection? Absolutely. I think that the indications for left atrial appendage have been well described. And, and as a point of sort of logistics, I think some of this is mandated by CMS and the need for shared decision-making, which I think is why it's so important that referring clinicians recognize the risks and benefits of left atrial appendage closure, because we often ask for those individuals to participate in the shared decision-making with patients. Procedures certainly have become increasingly safer, more convenient for the patients. And, you know, in many centers completed with same day discharge. And so there is a, an, a, there's progression in the number of patients that are referred. I think there are two clinical trials. That will be upcoming. One is called Watch Option. Another one is called Champion with Watchman, and a third called Catalyst with Amulet that are going to be looking to actually broaden the indication for left atrial appendage closure. So, looking to do closure with at the time of atrial fibrillation ablation, which is Watch Option, and then looking at left atrial appendage occlusion as an alternative to anticoagulation in patients that wouldn't today qualify for closure. So people that are tolerating anticoagulation without issue, randomizing those patients to continue anticoagulation versus complete closure, that, that was the premise behind Champion and Catalyst. Those are, they have five-year follow-up. Those results will take, you know, seven plus years to be in practice at this point. But the future looks like Closure may be a primary option for stroke risk management. Point one, one thing out about closure that I, it, and maybe you were going to ask this, it's what are the unresolved issues? And, and there are several. So the, some of the unresolved issues are what should we be utilizing for peri procedure imaging? What should we be doing with patients that have leaks of their device? What should we be doing with device-related thrombosis? The rates of thrombosis are, are quite low, think in like the 3 to 5% range, but do represent increased stroke rates for individuals who have device-related thrombosis. And the last question, probably the most pressing one, is how do we manage short-term anticoagulation for patients on rhythm control strategies after they've had a closure? So Somebody gets a watchman or an amulet, they have atrial fib, they're on aspirin as their long-term stroke risk reduction with combined with the closure. 
and you do a cardioversion or an ablation, what type of anticoagulation do those patients need? So those are four big kind of issues for downstream management of patients with closure as we move beyond the population that's persistent AF with a bleeding indication. I think that remains one of the biggest challenges that we see still in fellowship. At, at Ohio State, we use both CT and PEE to assess the occlusion devices. I guess maybe for the sake of time, if you both could just briefly touch on what your current practice is in regards to you know both imaging these devices and then making decisions on anticoagulation um, thereafter. So we just published a manuscript in each anticoagulation strategies around cardioversion in patients with left atrial appendage occlusion and whether that be from surgical atriclip or ligation, uh, whether it's from a lariat, an amulet or a watchman device, all of these patients were included and we found that we had a very low risk of events with a four-week strategy of anticoagulation of the patient following the cardioversion if they're if they're sent for cardioversion. So, so it, it was a limited anticoagulation scheme with good tolerance and a low neurologic event rates. So. That, that's something was, that, that we practice regularly now, regardless of how the appendage is occluded. I was teeing you up, brother. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot similar. to mention, if, if the patient does have an indication for chronic anticoagulation other than AFib, for instance, if they've had recurrent DVT or they have a thrombogenic genetic disorder, those patients are probably not the best. They're not the good candidates for an occlusion device as their sole form of thrombotic protection. They should remain on an oral anticoagulant if possible. Now, I think, Andrew, most of the time, the short-term uh, anticoagulation and therapies, the, the individual doing the cardioversion, maybe the implanter or the electrophysiologist is going to own that. I think the question you asked about imaging modalities pre and post is relevant too. You know, we want to try to minimize the amount of imaging and the strain on the system for patients who are coming through with closure. So we do a CT for all the patients that can tolerate it from a perspective of renal function. And then we essentially do about 50-50 implant with either TE guidance or intracardiac ultrasound guidance. And then we try to duplicate the imaging technique for the 45-day follow-up. So if, they, if we did an ICE closure, we'll do a CT at the 45-day. If we did a TE closure, we'll do a TE at the 5-day. You know, there are, it's a big conversation around what to do with leaks because leaks are present. And the more resolute the imaging technique, in this case CT, the more likely you are to see them. Does it, we don't necessarily extend the anticoagulation scheme past 45 days. 
if we do see a small leak, less than five millimeters, although Ralph can speak to the data that they presented about leaks less than three, if he wishes to. Um, but I think the, at the end of the day, if folks, if you do see a device related thrombus, that patient should be put on at least short-term anticoagulation. So regardless of the imaging modality, if you see a device related thrombus, that person should be put on at least short-term anticoagulation. We generally will suggest three to six months and repeat imaging. We're, we're very similar in that approach. We pretty much have adopted a CT imaging for both pre and post testing more than TEE at this point. It gives you the dimensions of the left atrial appendage. It avoids sedation for the patient. And I think it's a more comfortable and, and more there's, there's more information that you gather from the CT aside from the TEE. There are some operators that choose to use only intracardiac echo with no preceding imaging, have not adapted there myself at this point, but I am using ice with some of the cases where intraoperative TEE has increased risk. Thanks. Uh, thank you both for the insight. Uh, it's been very interesting to see device therapy evolve into the mainstream. There's so many aspects of AMP we could keep talking about. I, I just want to finish with one final topic because we're up against our time. And I'll throw it out to Anish first. We, we don't have time to talk about all the aspects of wearables and implantable loop recorders. That could be an entire podcast by itself. But my specific question for you, Anish, is as we've had a proliferation of of loop recorders and patients with whom, you know, EKG devices, whether it's Apple Watch, et cetera. Do we yet know whether the quote incidental AF that shows up on these monitors and devices incidentally carries the same, you know, kind of prognostic significance that clinically presenting AF does? Is that something we still have to figure out? And do you have any advice for clinicians, you know, who are dealing with, the, with these uh, results from these devices? Well, it's a great question. I, I will tell you that last year, I think at European Society of Cardiology, the question about symptomatic AF versus asymptomatic AF on loop recorders and stroke, cryptogenic stroke patients was described in two different trials with different results. So basically saying that these asymptomatic episodes maybe didn't increase the, the, the risk of stroke like the symptomatic episodes did. And I don't know if that's going to be true for wearables as well. I, I think that for the patient that has a known diagnosis of atrial fib, the wearable devices do provide us with a nice longitudinal mechanism to communicate with the patient beyond their symptoms. So to have patients transmit ECGs when they're having episodes, confirming a diagnosis before we instruct them to go to utilize acute care pathways, whether that's the emergency department, our office, AF clinic, et cetera. So I think they're valuable from that perspective. I also think that, you know, the next generation of devices, including the current Apple Watch, which allows AF burden detection, lets us talk to patients about that 
longitudinal history of atrial fib. So it's looking at somebody and saying, hey, when we saw you six months ago, you had a 3% burden of AFib. Now we're seeing you. It's a 10% burden. So your, whether your symptoms are changing or not, the disease is changing in the background and we should be managing that. So there is value from that perspective. I certainly do empathize with everybody who has to look at all the tracings because it, it, it is a little bit um, a data overload and we don't have great ways yet to not only manage the data, describe it, you know, in a usable format, but also to recognize the time that we're putting in for it, evaluating it. So those are all things that I think we're, we're going to have to face, especially because this is just the pinnacle. The, I think that ECG on a wearable format is easy to do. And most of us would agree with that. Then, you know, the evolving devices, and we've all seen them, whether it's sleep metric, VO2, you know, there are devices, especially on our implantable loops that can monitor heart failure. The list is almost endless of what's coming. So we're going to have to look at how to manage this stream of information. Yeah, thanks, Anish. That's insightful. I think we've had an amazing discussion. It's just amazing how complex this one condition is and how it affects so many aspects of cardiovascular care. And I think Andrew and I have both, we've been texting each other with so many additional questions and topics that we'd like to cover. So I would hope that maybe you guys would be willing to come back at some point in the future and educate us a little further, not just on AF, but perhaps some other EP topics as well. And until then, I just want to thank you both for taking the time to educate us and, and our listeners. So Ralph, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Andrew. And Anish as well. Yeah. Thank you guys. It's a pleasure. Yep. And thanks Andrew for co-hosting and until our next episode, we'll be in touch. Thank you for joining today's podcast. For more information about the speakers or the topics, please go to ohioacc.org.